We are um, bringing this series to a close. There's actually one more lesson in this series, but most of the time I, I have to pick one that we don't use. And uh, in this particular series, we wanted to end with this lesson tonight. We're, we've been talking about things that are good and positive and helpful to share with others, this idea of koinonia, this participation. But there's one aspect of koinonia that is different than the other applications. So I'm going to ask you if you'll take a Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 3. I want to show you this by way of introduction to our lesson this evening. The Apostle Paul says, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's an interesting triad. I think almost all of us would say, I want to know Jesus. I mean, I, I really want to know him. We're not talking here about I want to be acquainted with him. We want to know what he's like so we can be like him. And when we talk about the power of his resurrection, the idea that one day we will participate in that resurrection ourselves, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Those first two make sense, but that third one is a jolting realization. I not only want to know Jesus and know the power of his resurrection, but I want to know the fellowship, the koinonia of his suffering. I want to know his suffering. And again, that word koinonia puts a different flavor on that phrase. Because what he did not say is, I want to know what his suffering was like. It's not like meditating or thinking about his death and burial. It is, I want to know the fellowship, the koinonia of his suffering. That's not just knowledge of it. That's participating in it. Paul wanted to share in the sufferings of Christ. Well, I, we see the power of his resurrection, but the sharing in the sufferings? I have three things for you tonight. Just three things. First of all, we share in the sufferings of Christ. I'm telling you this up front. If we do his work, we will suffer as he did. I don't mean to say to you, we will all be crucified. But we will all share 
the sufferings that Christ himself suffered. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1. You only have to go, in my Bible, you only have to go two pages over to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my koinonia on behalf of his body, which is the church, listen, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I want to share in the afflictions of Christ to fill it up, to bring it to its fullness. And he connects that in the church. This is a necessary evil if we're to grow in righteousness. Again, look at it. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The kingdom of God is furthered by suffering. When we're having wonderful times and we're prospering and people get jobs and people are respected in the community and the church enjoys a good reputation, we pray, and, and I get it, Lord, let this continue. Thank you for these blessings and may it continue for us. But when we suffer, when the church's reputation is besmirched by the world, when we are ridiculed or laughed at or hated for what we stand for, or if we're losing jobs because of what we stand for in Christ, if, if we're suffering affliction, it is rare for God's people to give thanks for that. And yet the Apostle Paul says here, there is a measure of suffering that we have to pour into the body of Christ to bring it to the fullness that God wants from us. And we, we will not do that and cannot do that if we are constantly praying about suffering. Stop! Lord, stop it! That's... That's removing the nozzle before the tank is filled. And the desires of the flesh are killed painfully. <laughs> That's not an easy thing. To put away the desires of the flesh. You know, I've used this illustration already once, but I, I bring you back to it. I don't like liver. It's not hard for me to turn down liver. It's not hard. Somebody says, hey, we're having liver. I go, yeah, have it on your own. I'm not there. Not my thing. I can push away a plate of liver in a heartbeat. I'd push away a plate of liver if I hadn't eaten in three days. That's not hard. I don't eat it. But smoked mullet or fried catfish or a big cat head biscuit with butter and honey on it. That's hard to push away. For me, 
Because that's something I enjoy. The desires of the flesh are things we enjoy. They're desires of the flesh. And so to put those away, to push them away from us, is described in the Scriptures in very drastic terms. Killing it. Killing the desires of the flesh. And when we do that, we demonstrate the scandal of following Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that bears fruit, the Father prunes it that it may bear more fruit. I've always seen a graphic illustration in my mind, and in my imagination. I've always thought about, here's a tree, and the tree's got all kinds of fruit on it. It's out there, and it says, man, I am producing fruit. I am doing what the Lord wants me to do. I am doing what my master wants me to do. He's fertilizing me and watering me, and I'm producing fruit. And then here he comes. Wait, what's he got in his hand? He's got big lopping shears in his hands. What is he doing with lopping shears? And he starts cutting. Now, I know a tree can't feel pain like we feel pain. But if it could, don't you know a tree that is being pruned would not understand at all what is happening? That tree would view that as supreme punishment. Wait, 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 wait. you're lopping off that branch. Look at all the fruit I produced off of that. Cut it off. Drop it on the ground. Why? Why does God do that? Every branch in me that bears fruit, my Father prunes it. Why? That it may bear more fruit. That's what John 15, 2 says. So sometimes God takes away things from us, not because he says, no, you can't have that. That's not good for you. But if I take that away from you, you're going to have something better. You're going to have something better. And sharing in the sufferings of Christ, sharing what he went through is absolutely essential. For us to be what God wants us to be. I will tell you, I think we have substituted the pursuit of happiness for the pursuit of holiness. We've bought into our country's thoughts that God has given us inalienable rights, and among those are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Quit pursuing happiness. Pursue holiness, and the kind of happiness God wants you to have will be yours. But i got to tell you, that kind of happiness doesn't always result in smiling faces and rejoicing and comfort. It does not. Was Jesus joyful at going to the cross? Yes, why? Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He saw that the cross was a way to get to the joy. And I think sometimes our thinking is, well, if I do that, will I be happy? I don't think I will, so I don't want to do it. And it's not this world's happiness. Look at Romans chapter 8 
and verse 17. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. If we're children, we're heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. If indeed we suffer with him. And in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. 1 Peter 4 verse 13. Here's what Peter says. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. But verse 13, to the degree that you, here's our word, here's our word, to the degree that you koinonia, the sufferings of Christ, sufferings of Christ, keep on whining. Doesn't say that, does it? Keep on lamenting. Doesn't say that. Keep on enduring. Keep on toughing it out. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. It says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. The way to holiness is on the road called Suffering. We share in the sufferings of Christ. And we share in suffering with Christ. One of the, one of the great concepts that has become apparent to me is when I suffer for Christ, Christ comes to suffer with me. There is an association I gain with Christ by suffering for Christ. I want to show you where that is. Go to Acts chapter 9. Uh, you're familiar with the story, but I want to show you something about Jesus' conversation with Saul. Chapter 9, book of Acts, verses 4 and 5. Saul's on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. It says in verse 4, He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And then he said, who, who are you, Lord? I don't even know who you are. Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, was Saul persecuting Jesus? Jesus isn't even there. He's dead, buried, and resurrected. He's not even there in person. Saul, to my knowledge, never met Jesus in the flesh. He's not on the way to Damascus because he heard Jesus is there and he's going to get him. 
Who is it that he is persecuting in that text? He is persecuting the people of Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I take that personally. You, you touch my people, you're touching me. I love that. Because that gives me a reassurance. When, when somebody's attacking me for my stand in Jesus Christ, I have this assurance my Lord is with me. He is saying to those people, why are you persecuting me? And I'll tell you what, Jesus has a whole lot more clout, a whole lot more influence with my Father in heaven than anybody I know on this earth. If I have anybody that I want to stand with me and to speak my cause, I want Jesus. Why are you persecuting me. In uh, John chapter 15 that we have been looking at off and on, in verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know it's hated me before it's hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. What is Jesus saying? When the world hates you, it hates me. I'm there with you. I stand with you in that situation. And in chapter 16 and verse 33, he says again, I've spoken these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Now, I, I might respond, okay, you have, but what about me? And I think Jesus says, you're not reading into it what you should. I've overcome the world. Are you with me? Then you have too. You've gained it also in that situation. So if, if he has led us into this crucible, a crucible is a vessel for purifying metals, if he's led us into the crucible, is he going to leave us there? There's no way he's going to leave us there. I've overcome the world. You're coming out the other side of this with me. And again, back in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is what Jesus promises. He will see us through this. Now, I, I do want to say this to you. What I just described cannot happen if we react to suffering in the wrong way. In Acts chapter 5, <clears throat> and verse 41, Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. I want you to look at the reaction of the apostles. Verse 40 says, They took his advice, that's Gamaliel, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. 
And they ordered him not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released him. Now, before we read the next verse, I want you to know that phrase, they flogged him, doesn't in any way, shape, or form describe what happened. And you and I cannot imagine. I am pretty sure there's not a person in this audience that has ever, ever, ever suffered a flogging. I mean, it is a severe whipping. And when I use the word whipping, you may say, oh, you don't know my dad. Or you don't know my mom. They were pretty good at whippings. We're not talking about that kind of whipping. We're talking about flogging is with a long leather whip. It is painful. It is skin ripping. It is cutting into the subcutaneous tissues. It is a horrible thing. When it just says, and they flogged him and released him, told him not to speak, those apostles dragged themselves out of there. They didn't go, ain't so bad. It wasn't a Rocky Balboa taking a beating from Apollo Creed. It ain't so bad. It was not that at all. But I want you to look at their reaction in the next verse. They went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Isn't that incredible? That these apostles would go out of that. First of all, they're being beaten unfairly. They have done nothing worth that. I want you to imagine that maybe you've got a bumper sticker on your car. And that bumper sticker is supporting some cause or some political figure. Uh, something that you believe strongly in. And you're driving down the road and all of a sudden a police officer throws on the lights and he pulls you off to the side of the road. What are you pulling, for? pulling me over for, officer? Would you get that? step out of the car, please? Step out of the car. You step out of the car and you're still asking the question, can you tell me what this is about? And suddenly he takes out a nightstick and he just slaps you upside the head with that. And you fall to the ground. He says, I don't appreciate that stinking bumper sticker you got. I'm opposed to that completely. And then he proceeds to beat you bloody. Most of us, I'm afraid would react to that in absolute indignation. We have done nothing worthy of this beating. But how much would you have to believe in a cause to, after that police officer's beat you and he's worn out, gets in his car and drives off, that you get up and you say, I am just glad I have a chance to prove how much I believe in my cause. Because that's what those apostles did. It's exactly what they did. They rejoiced on their way. It wasn't after they got back and they had had their wounds all uh, cleaned up and they had on gauze and ointment and salve and everything else and they're feeling a little better. The next day they realized we should rejoice about this. No, this was as they left. They are rejoicing. And, and here's, here's the point. If, and I'll just 
use as, as an example, I'll just use Roger. If Roger says, hey, Ralph, can you come over and help me? I got some really heavy stuff to move. It's a two-person job, and I, I need you to come help. And I say, sure, I'll be glad to come. And I come over, and then I look, and Roger's got these massive bookshelves, and he's packed the books in two large cases, and they're really heavy. And he says, we got to move all these and put them out in the car. And I go, oh, I hate doing this kind of work. This is... This is where my back goes out, but I'll do it. I'll do it. I said I would. Roger says, no, you don't have to do it. No, I'll do it. I'll do it. I said I would. And as I'm carrying them, I'm going, well, do you think you could make these any heavier? Could you park the car any further away? I mean, this is, this is grueling. Did you have to pick the hottest day of the year for us to do this work? And could you, couldn't you have gotten one that had a lower tailgate, and then we're loading, and I said, are we not done yet? Is there more we have to do? At the end of that experience, do you think Roger's heart is filled with gratitude toward me, if that's the way I've talked? No, he can't wait to get rid of me. And do you think next time he needs help, he'll call on me? And if some of you were saying, hey, thanks for telling me that. That's a great plan. You're missing the point. You're missing the point altogether. If I grumble and complain, I don't strengthen my relationship with you. I don't make you feel grateful or connected to me at all. So if I am in those sufferings and I'm constantly complaining and, and whining about it, and I'm grumbling about what I'm going through and how unfair it is, is my connection with the Lord Jesus Christ strengthened or weakened? And it's weakened. I'll tell you one more thing. Sometimes we suffer because we deserve to suffer. It's like the guy went to the psychiatrist and he said, I, I need your help. I think I have an inferiority complex. And after talking with him, the psychiatrist said, you don't have an inferiority complex. You're inferior. If I'm suffering for the wrong reasons because I have brought it on myself, maybe I'm a smart aleck. Maybe I'm a guy who's quick with a sarcastic tongue. Maybe I've mastered looks on my face that make me look like I disdain everybody around me. If that is why I'm suffering, then I've earned it. I've earned it. And God doesn't give me credit for that suffering. In, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, Peter says, Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. So if I'm going around talking about people, and I finally have somebody who gets fed up with my loose tongue and my slanderous attitude, and they finally come up and slap me across the face, I can't say, up oh, here I am, suffering for the cause of Christ. No, no, I just suffered because I'm sinful. We need to make sure in our sufferings with Christ, we're suffering for the right reasons and with the right attitudes 
1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. With gentleness and reverence. So someone's talking to you at work or at school or in a car going somewhere, and they say, you know, I just don't believe in the resurrection. I, I'm having trouble believing in that. If you say, well, you're just stupid, that's why. And you're just an idiot if you don't believe that. There, I have made my defense. No, no, you really haven't. Because you haven't carried out the latter part of that statement to make a defense. It's with reverence and gentleness that we respond. I'll tell you, folks, we're living in a culture in which everybody's got to fight nasty. Civility in our conversations is gone. And in a culture like that, where everybody's calling everybody else names, and everybody is calling everybody a liar, and everybody is impugning the motives of every person imaginable, you and I need to stand out as people who don't do that. As people who don't fight that way. We just don't do that. We speak truth in love. We speak with reverence and gentleness. All right, last thought. We share in the sufferings of others. We share in the sufferings of others. In Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Remember the former days. When after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Now listen, listen to what's said. You endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Some of your suffering was due to taking a stand with other people who were suffering. That takes courage. If you're at school, and this doesn't just apply to a spiritual application but if you're, let's use it that way, you're at school and somebody's making fun of one of your classmates. Maybe it's even a teacher who's making fun of the fact that one of your classmates doesn't believe in evolution or doesn't believe in our culture's view of gender, that you can pick and choose what you are. Maybe it's something like that and somebody's ridiculing your friend, your brother or sister in Christ. What's easier to do? Sit quiet and pray for them? Or speak up and say, hey, I believe the same thing they do. The same thing. I stand with him or her. Which is harder? I stand with them. 
You, if you, what you're saying about them, you're going to have to say about me. You partly endured tribulations and reproaches, and partly you endured becoming sharers with those who were so treated. This, this koinonia that we're talking about, we come to the conclusion of this series. You know, I said this at the very beginning. We're talking about a whole lot more than food and fun and what we typically call fellowship, mingling and mixing socially, staying in touch with each other through text or email or voicemail, sending little notes to each other to find out how we're doing. This fellowship is deep. And sometimes it is dark. We need to be diving down to its depths. Not paddling on the surface. True koinonia involves sharing in blood, sweat, toil, and tears. So if we talk of our achievements, sometimes I run into people that are marathoners. I'm not a runner. I've said before, I will take up running when I see somebody running with a smile on their face. I just don't see it. They look miserable to me. But when you talk about a marathon, some people are excited. Some are bored. Some are jealous. Wish I could do that. And some are pretty negative. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense on me. People I know that run marathons, they break their knees up and their bodies and doesn't seem like a very good thing. That's when we talk about our achievements. But have you ever noticed how when we talk about our losses and our pain, everybody comes alongside? When we're going through deep and dark things, we attract others with our tears. Dare to be vulnerable. Dare to open yourself up to the things that are of a concern and a need and a pain for you. How do we do that? How do we share in sufferings? Let me offer just a couple of thoughts. We respond to suffering with prayer. We pray. We do pray for relief. But more, we pray for courage in the suffering. Be careful about wanting to pop the pressure valve on that suffering. It may not be time. I've had people come to me and they've said, my, my child, my son, or my daughter, they're not living right, and I want you to pray for them that they can come back to the Lord. I want them to come back to the Lord. And I say this, I, and I, I'll say it to you tonight. If you want to pray that they come back to the Lord, you better be prepared to stand by some serious suffering. It's not always the case, but sometimes the only way God can get our attention is to crush us. So are you courageous enough to say, let them be crushed? Could you stand by while your child was finding pig slop a possible food source? When the only clothes on his or her body are in tatters and there is absolutely no help, no government program, no relief agency, no signs on the side of the road, hungry, anything will help. 
Can you stand by and let that happen till the crushing results in your child or your husband or wife or parents finally saying, in my father's house is plenty of bread. I will go to him and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Can you wait for that? Pray. We respond emotionally. We've already talked about this once, but I repeat it in the context of this lesson. Romans 12, verse 15. We rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We weep with those who weep. We don't just watch them weep. And I'm not saying you manufacture it, but you get so involved in that. How is it? How is it that we men can watch sporting events and it not go our way and we want to cry and get out on the floor and beat our head in the mat and then somebody has a serious problem in their life and we go, I don't know, I just have trouble showing emotions. No, you don't. And how is it that sometimes women can experience vicariously the pains and sorrows of somebody on a TV screen or a movie screen or in a book, and then when somebody really needs our help, we say, I don't know, I just have trouble getting involved to that level. Weep with those who weep. I want to, I want to just share with this, you this last thought. Uh, one time in North Carolina, when we were living there, they had a big snowstorm over in the mountains near Asheville. And a reporter was there, as you know how they always are. they got to get out there in the middle of the scene and show you just how bad it is, because you wouldn't believe it if you didn't see the snow all over their brows and, and all over them. And this is really terrible. And they were showing you how a bunch of trees were down across I, uh, the interstate that goes across North Carolina into Asheville. And then they said, but look at this big stand of trees over here. How is it that these trees are standing when all these others have fallen? And they said, because these trees, we understand, have a very shallow root system, and the roots will actually intertwine, and they'll support each other. They support each other. If they were alone, they couldn't do it because the roots aren't deep enough, but they support each other. Folks, that's exactly what we got to do. We got to support each other. We got to stand with each other we got to ask God to break our hearts with the things that break his heart. That's fellowship in sufferings. Thanks for listening.